It's interesting to bring up this concept of being steadfast and immovable. This was our retreat theme this last summer for the youth retreat. And, 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 uh, and when we think about this call by the apostle for all Christians to be steadfast and immovable in Christ, it, it shines in direct contrast to the world in which we live in. Our, the world that we live in is really marked and defined right now by being built on shifting sand. The, the philosophy, the, the culture that we live in is, that has embraced for so many decades now of, well, what's true for you may not be true for me, and, and what is truth anyway? It's, it's born forth... This picture of everything being questioned in ways that nobody in this room could have imagined even five years ago. You know, of of gender itself. Who's to say who's a boy or a girl? We've, We've degenerated even to that level based on this idea of we can't really know anything at all. And these huge questions, this, this picture in the world in which we live in, it so easily has creeped into the church itself. These false worldviews have slowly invaded our Christian lives to where we too have spent decades asking the question, what is truth, though we have truth sitting in our laps? We question what is truth. We question if truth is really absolute. Or was this truth culturally based upon something that happened 2,000 years ago? We question, can we really know what God's Word really has to say to us? Can we really even know if this is God's Word? The biblical result of this in people's lives is that we begin to embrace this idea that childlike faith in God is actually childlike knowledge of God. We, we've embraced this idea of if all, all you really need to know is love God and love others. And those things are true, but does that encapsulate the full corpus of the gospel and of truth? Do we just stop there and say, I need to know nothing else other than that? Or is there more to be revealed in, in our study and in, in plumbing God's word and, and embracing him more deeply as we see the truths in, revealed in scripture? The practical result of these things is a church that is anti-intellectual, ecumenical, morally rel- relativistic in how we commune with one another in our lives. We end up in a place where the church ends up being looking a lot like the world. Good churches end up looking a lot like the world when we don't remain steadfast and immovable in God's word and in his truth revealed in scripture. This should not be this way. What we confess is a faith that is absolute. It is unwavering. It is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and His gospel. And from that we should be steadfast and immovable. That doesn't mean we should never ask a question, because we should. 
We should ask plenty of questions of God's Word, of God Himself. We should ask hard questions because I believe to those hard questions are beautiful answers that ground us even more in the place where we will be steadfast and immovable. The world may not like our answers. In fact, the world hates that. The world hates the idea that you, know, you narrow-minded people are, are standing upon some words that were written so many years ago. And, and who do you think you are to proclaim what you proclaim? They find offense in these things. And when I say that, we need to understand there's nothing new to that. This isn't, this isn't the first generation to ever talk like this. In fact, when we look at the church at Corinth, it was an early victim to this type of dying, downward spiral of a worldview. If you look at 1 first, at first Corinthians 15, at verse 12, we read, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul is astounded by this. He just finished eight verses earlier pointing out to his readers that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to the gospel. It's essential to what we believe and what we hold firm to. He talked about how Hundreds of people have seen the resurrected Christ with their own eyes. He talks about how he himself had seen the resurrected Christ with his own eyes. He says, these people that I'm telling you about, they are still alive as I'm writing these words. You can go and ask them. We saw him. We saw him. And now he stops and says, how is it that some of, my, uh, some of you, some of us among us right now are denying the resurrection? How can that be? And when we look at that, when we hear Paul's question here, it is a good question to ask, well, why would that be the case? Why were they so anti-resurrection? And the answer to that question is powerful. As I stated earlier, the church... Is, can be radically influenced by worldviews around us and cultural philosophies. And there was no different for the church in Corinth. Grecian philosophy had radically impacted the church because hundreds of years before this, the legendary teacher and philosopher Plato had begun instructing his followers that the unseen world... In other words, everything that we don't see, there's this spiritual corresponding reality to everything tangible that we can put our hands upon. And that spiritual reality, that reality is pure. That everything good is, is linked to that unseen spiritual reality. He would say, you know, my phone. Here it is, it exists, and I can touch it and feel it, but this is corrupted. But there's another essence to it over here that we can't see and we can't feel, and that reality is spiritual, and it is real, and it is pure, and it's true. And he said everything else, everything else that we touch and we feel, everything that we are is corrupted. It's, you know, it's kind of ugly, and it's putrid, and it's vile, and and if you've never heard this before, it may sound odd to you, but this is what, this is what the world had, the, the Western world had come to believe in. 
They had embraced this truth. They, they had embraced it to such a point that everybody accepted it as absolute truth. And as a result, the idea of a bodily, physical resurrection would be repugnant to them. They would look at this and say, anybody with half a brain would, would hear the idea of this man dying and then resurrecting bodily and then living on forever in this body? That's disgusting. That's gross. Who would ever want to live in that existence? This is the putrefied thing. I'm looking for something more, something better. And so they would reject the idea of a resurrection straight out. Well, what was the result of this? Much like what we see in the church today, that the false beliefs of the culture crept into the church and it influenced them to where they were even rejecting an essential part of the gospel. And it would be naive of us to think that this isn't what we deal with right now in the church. Maybe not in the exact same way, but we do deal with it. We live in a culture that has a philosophy that preaches to us on a day-by-day basis. It's pounding into our hearts and into our minds and trying to grab hold of us with all these things like, uh, like the YOLO. If you haven't heard that, don't look around and look confused because you're going to show your age. YOLO is an acronym for you only live once. And we live in a culture that has embraced that to its fullest extent. You only live once. Just get as much as you can out of this life while you can before you die. Experience is the paramount truth in life. This is the culture in which we live. Experience is what we should all live for. Nothing else really matters. Just what can you feel? What can you, you know, you got to live for whatever makes you happy right now in the moment. And we feel like that, we believe that, because we've lost sight of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't think beyond what today holds anymore. Even though Christ holds out to us in the gospel something far greater than that. So as we go through this text this morning, I want us to really embrace what he's saying. He's talking into a culture who has said, we reject any resurrection, so let's just live for right now. That is what they believed. That is how they lived. And we live in a culture who says, let's just live for right now. For there is no life beyond what I know today. So Paul's response to this, and he responds by taking everybody down a very, very dark road. He spells out four consequences for Christians everywhere if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead. And he uses this gracious cattle prod, prod, uh, prod of logic that I believe will he's seeking to shake some spiritual life back into a church who is radically influenced by the culture around them. And in doing so, he wants to create a stable church that is immovable, steadfast in Jesus Christ. 
He's going, to count, he's going to accomplish this by, again, counting the cost of no resurrection. The number one cost that he brings up is in verse 13. And he says in verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. There's this terrible consequence. If there is no resurrection, he repeats it again in verse 16, if you drop down with me. He says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. A clearly obvious and logical argument, but it is a powerful argument. Because if Jesus' body is still in the ground and he is dead, he is not alive. If Christ is dead, there is no way we can share in his victory over death. If he's dead, we have no hope. We die too. And this is a key component to even understanding the gospel. You think with me, if Jesus, he wasn't sent to this earth to redeem himself. I, ask, I used to ask my kids this. I still have younger kids. But I'll ask them, well, why did Jesus die? Why did he die? Did he do any sins? No. Well, death is the result of sin, so why would he die? The logical answer to that is, well, he must have died for somebody else. He died for us. And if he died for us, he rose again for us so that we might have forgiveness of sins through his death and we might have newness of life through his resurrection. Yet if he did not die, then we have no hope. We have no future. There is no words that we read at the end, uh, or these words at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 don't mean anything to us. When we read, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If death wins, there's no point to life. There's no point in continuing to move forward. We might as well embrace YOLO. We might as well say, yeah, you only live once and just keep going if death has victory over Christ. And more than that, it's important to see that if death wins, if YOLO is right, if the philosophies of these world are correct, then Jesus is wrong about everything. He's gotten everything wrong if the world is right in its philosophies that it's trying to pull us into. And I say that so clearly because we must be warned. You can't walk hand in hand with the world and hand in hand with Jesus at the same time because one is right and one is wrong. And if Jesus is dead, he's wrong. But if he is alive... We must heed his words and his truth. This is what Paul wants the church to grab hold of with both arms. And he's going to go on to make his argument even more powerful. Paul's next cost or consequence of the non-resurrected Jesus is found in verse 14. Where we read, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Again, Paul reiterates this in verse 17, and he says, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. As I said earlier, the, earlier, the logic of Paul's argument is compelling. 
Because if outside of Jerusalem there is a tomb, the contents of which hold Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, still decayed and his body has turned to dust, then Paul is saying the content of his words, the content of his preaching, the content of my words, every proclaimer of Jesus Christ who has ever existed in the last 2,000 years, if the tomb is full, then the words are meaningless. It's empty. It's vanity. This is a clear and distinct line with no gray area. If there's no resurrection of Christ then my words are not just, you know, not good anymore. They're not just empty of goodness. They're in fact bad words. What I'm teaching, what I'm proclaiming, what you're listening to, what you're holding on to in your life, it's not that it's just empty of being good news. It's in fact horrifying news. It's horrible news. It's the worst news that can be offered. In verse 15, we see this. He says, yes, And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. He's saying, my words are not good words, they're in fact bad words. They should be turned away from, they should be rejected, they are worthless Without the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ is utter nonsense. Because unless Christ has conquered sin and death, the only hope we have for any of us is death. You could come to a church like many churches on Sundays right now who talk about Jesus Christ as simply a model a model for a better existence. He's going to make your life a little bit better right now. What good does that do me when I'm dead in the ground? How does that help me? I get to lay in the ground six feet under going, well, at least I feel better about myself. It does nothing. It's meaningless. It's empty without the resurrection. There is no life. There is no hope. There's nothing to live for. Without the resurrection, we are just like the world. Just maybe we look a little better on the outside. It's at that point that Paul's argument becomes like a crushing wave, crashing upon those who don't embrace the resurrected Christ. It crashes upon us and it questions everything that we do and everything that believe and everything that we want to live for if we're only living for today. It's devastating news, and we should embrace it. As we move on, we reach the apex of Paul's argument in verse 19. He says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, This is what I was saying. If it's only the hope that we have in Christ is just for the life that we're living right now and there's nothing beyond that, then we are of all men the most pitiable. 
What Paul is saying here is that the life Paul has chosen to live and any person who lives with their eyes fixed on the future hope that is only given in Jesus Christ, that life would be a pitiful life. It would be a pitiful, painful existence. It would be utter foolishness if there is no resurrection. And Paul, as we read about his life, these words are hit upon his heart more than most anybody who's ever existed. You think about his life. You think about, and I'll just turn there and read it to you, uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, do I even have it written down? Maybe I do. 2 Corinthians 11, yeah. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23. He says, he, he's arguing against these false super apostles who have entered into the church and they're pulling the church away from listening to, to Paul. And now he's making the argument and he says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. And then he says, I am more of a minister of Christ. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, beatings, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, more often. From the Jews, five times I have received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in the journeys, often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wi- in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often in cold and nakedness. This is Paul's autobiography. And he can look at this and go, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, pity me, because this is the life that I have chosen. And if this life is all that I have, I have had a miserable existence. I have wasted my time. I have wasted my life. And I should be pitied. If you are risking anything for an unresurrected Savior, or if you are clinging to any false worldview that pulls you away from having your eyes focused on a resurrected Savior whose promise is of life eternal, we are fools. We should embrace what the world offers. Paul says that himself in verse 32 of chapter 15. He says, uh, if, uh, I'm sorry, where is that? If in the manner of men, if there is no resurrection, if in the manner of men I fight off the beasts of Ephesus, what advantage is that to me? If I give up everything and die fighting, if there's no resurrection, What advantage of it to me? If the dead do not rise, he said, let's be like the world. Let us eat eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's just be like them. Let's stop wasting our time if we're going to embrace the lies of the culture in which we live in. If Christ is still dead. If. Thank God he is not dead. He lives and he reigns even now. 
And this is exactly where Paul goes. From the words of despair in verse 19 rise words of eternal hope in verse 20. And I love these words. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. But now. Two great words in Scripture. I love how Paul connects things and he says, like in Ephesians, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive with Christ. Your life is miserable and empty if Jesus Christ is dead, but now, in fact, He is alive. And you have life in Him. And you can live beyond what this world has to offer. And you don't have to hold hands with the philosophies of these world just to find some temporary satisfaction in life. You have Christ and He is alive. And to that we do say, Amen. He is the first fruits of our lives. In his resurrection, we can look and focus our eyes upon him and say, if God has risen him from the dead, he will surely raise me from the dead. And I can hope in that harvest. Our faith is not worthless. Our salvation is secure. Our sacrifices are significant. That's why if you think this has merely been an intellectual exercise, you are wrong. Everything you do has significance if Christ is not dead. Everything you do, every interaction with a coworker, every key that you click on a keyboard that just feels like some mind-numbing experience at 4.30 in the afternoon at your workplace can have significance if Christ is risen. The way you eat cereal in the morning can have significance if Christ is risen. If, if He is your focus and you realize apart from Him, all I have is death and there's no hope apart from Him, what I'm chewing right now means everything because I don't deserve food. I don't deserve life. I don't deserve light. I don't deserve friends. I don't deserve anything apart from Him. But in Him, I have everything. Praise be to God. And it carries significance that never ends. This drives me. It never ends. What we do carries on throughout all ages to the end of time and beyond. Why? Because Jesus Christ is risen and your life is not meaningless and nothing that you do is pointless if your eyes are focused on Him. He gives them meaning with His very life. I've asked very tough questions. Paul has asked very tough questions of us to ponder and meditate on. But I want to ask one more. I, I doubt there are a whole lot of people in this room who would question or deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But with that being said, I want you to stop and think for a second, and I don't mean this to rid you or, or to, to pour guilt upon you, I want you to ask this question to drive you towards the grace of Christ. And the question that I have to ask is, do you affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
with your lips, but have you been denying it with your life? Do you, do you nod your head and say, I totally believe that Christ is risen right now. But the things about your life say, I live for now. I want what makes me happy right now. Uh, th- that thing, I don't mean to use my iPhone because I know for some of us, the iPhone is really important. But that thing, that temporary thing in my life is so close to me, I can't see anything else beyond it. I can't see the resurrected Christ because all the other stuff in my life is so important. Do we affirm with our mouths Christ is risen, but do we deny it with our lives? Are we living for this world, revealing in a sense that our future hope is secondary in comparison to the immediate pleasures of life? Would the people around us who know us closely, who see and can examine our lives on a regular basis, would they take stock of your life and my life and say, yes, this person's life is focused on the eternal. This person's life would be pathetic if Jesus Christ is dead. Would they say that? Would they think that about us? And if they wouldn't, my prayer is that we would all once again be encouraged to live in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would we live in the light of Him when we talk to our kids the way we talk to them sometimes, when they inconvenience us and make our lives difficult, when our spouses just aren't doing what we want them to do the way we want them to do it, at the time we want them to do it? Would we remember our resurrected king and have that truth say, I'm going to live for eternity. May we together reject YOLO and embrace YOLF. (laughs) Somewhere Connor is very excited. Embrace YOLF. Not you only live once. You only live forever. We live forever. All of us. And our lives have significance. If we would just remember in every decision we make, this is going to carry on forever. I can choose to live for right now or I can choose to live for Him. Make little wristbands, shirts, it's okay. Whatever you want to do, you can take that. We live forever. And for believers, that is incredibly encouraging. But for non-believers, remember, it's also true of them. They live forever, either with Christ or apart from Him. So we should pray. We should pray in light of this truth. It changes everything. When we embrace this, we will be steadfast and immovable in Christ Jesus our King, knowing that our labors are not in vain. And maybe you feel that this way, that way this morning, that you've walked in feeling that, gosh, it just seems all so worthless, pointless. I don't know why I keep moving in this direction when all it does is cause me pain and frustration 
And to that, Paul says, remember Jesus. He is risen. You have much to repent of, but you have so much more to rejoice in because your labors are not in vain when our eyes are on the King. We may, may we pray together now and embrace that truth with one voice and one heart. Father, I thank you for these words this morning. Lord, we thank you that you do sit upon the throne even now. That your life is our hope for life. That your model of one who says, I live for my Father in heaven to do his will. I don't seek to be a pleaser of man, but a pleaser of my Father. Lord, may that model be the model for us that we embrace with our whole hearts. May we do it only by the power of, our, of your spirit because apart from you, we can do nothing. But in you, we can bear good fruit that lasts forever. Help us to do it. Help If, if there's any of us who have slowly allowed the, the philosophies and the culture and the worldview around us creep into our hearts and start to dictate how we make decisions, Lord, may we now repent of these things and remember that we do live forever in your presence. And may our decisions reflect that so that all can see the worthiness of you, our King and our Savior. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.